New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Are we alone? Are we being influenced by non-human intelligences? Do UFOs, near-death experiences, and alien abductions exist? Are we in a battle between good and evil, and is our future as a civilization at stake? Today we'll be exploring contact with non-human intelligence as part of humanity's ancient history with our guest Mark Gober. Mark Gober, besides being an advisor to technology companies and previously working as an investment banking analyst in New York, as well as being a leading strategist for intellectual property, is a brilliant curator and researcher of various scientific papers and books about consciousness, biological processes, psychic phenomena, near-death experiences, and quantum physics. He graduated magna cum laude from Princeton University, where he wrote his award-winning thesis on Daniel Kahneman's Nobel Prize-winning Prospect Theory and was elected a captain of Princeton's Division I tennis team. Gober is an author of several books, including An End to Upside-Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness, and An End to Upside-Down Contact, UFOs, Aliens, and Spirits, and Why Their Ongoing Interaction with human civilization matters. So please join us for the next hour as we explore alien contact with our guest, Mark Gober. I'm speaking with Mark from his home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Mark, welcome. Hi, Justine. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to see you again. Um, Let's just first... Are alien entities a fantasy, or are they real? Well, defining the word aliens is an important part of that question. The way I think about it is that human beings are not the only advanced intelligence that exists. And what those other intelligences are, that is a different question. And I think there are probably many species that exist, some of which are physical, others of which are probably multidimensional, i.e. spiritual. 
And uh, once exploring this topic, it's it's number one, mind expanding, because through our perceptual organs of our eyes and our ears and um, our ordinary perceptions in everyday life, we don't see these sorts of things. But there is a lot of research out there suggesting that we are not alone, and this is probably an ancient phenomenon. And there are people who do have do seem to have uh, pretty amazing encounters. And when we talk about these, the actual entities that that people might see or say they encounter, whether it's psychically or whether it's in physicality, there are different types that are described. So it's not just one, as you say, it's multidimensional. It's not just one particular species, so to speak. Can you describe them? Yes. So there seem to be many species. Um, to give an example, in, in near-death experiences, when a person, let's say, is in a state of cardiac arrest, their brain is essentially off and they go into some other world, at least their consciousness does, they often talk about encountering either spiritual entities um, or beings of light. So these seem to be distinct species, effectively, but they're not physical. But then there are other species that are more humanoid that people report, sometimes in conjunction with an alien craft or some kind of advanced craft like a UFO. And there are some, I mean, it sounds crazy, but people talk about gray aliens repeatedly. They talk about beings that are insectoid, praying mantis type beings, reptilian beings, and lots in between. So this is, it's not something I would have written about if it was just a case here and there. This is reported by many, many people um, and it's been reported throughout history across many different cultures. So it seems to be very diverse. Right. When we think about this, we say, oh, well, these people talked about like these insect beings. So those other ones are not real. You know, I mean, it, it just gets confusing because, as you say, when I was reading your book, I realized, oh, there are many different kinds of beings that come to us or that are contact us at some point. That's what's so confusing. And I think that the big question then is, are they here for good things? Are they here to benefit humankind? Or are they here for their own agendas that might be like enslaving humankind? So, uh, what does your research show about that? Hmm. It's a very good question. It's one I still think about all the time because I, I, it seems to me that there are different beings that have different intentions. It doesn't seem like a monolithic agenda that there are beings that really want to help humanity and others who might want to enslave or utilize humanity or extract our energy through fear or something like that. Um, and even even more interesting here is that the beings seem to be so advanced, or at least some of them, that they can alter our perception. So to give an example, uh, John Mack, who was the head of psychiatry at Harvard, Pulitzer Prize winner, a very credible person who studied many encounters that human beings claim to have with non-human intelligences. What he wrote in his book is that the aliens appear to be consummate shapeshifters meaning that they can appear one way, but they're not actually that way. So they can manipulate reality in a way that's so, so much more advanced than humans are. And that makes things difficult too, because you could have a being that could masquerade as something very benevolent, but maybe it's actually not. 
So one of the themes for me that's emerged is that discernment is really critical for humanity as we try to wade through uh, not only humans, but these other entities in terms of whether they want to help humanity or hurt us. I remember there was something that you wrote about or reported in, in your research, and that was these people who describe a kind of classroom where there were certain entities that that wanted to blend in, and we're talking about hybrids uh, at this point, uh, that blend in with humankind but they didn't know how to interact. So they would have these classrooms like a, a big cocktail party or something and how to interact. Do you do you recall that? Yeah. So you're referring to a book by Dr. David Jacobs from Temple University, who who, like Dr. John Mack from Harvard, he studied these allegations of people who had alien contact or even abductions. And what Dr. Jacobs focused on, at least based on what he was hearing from people that had these experiences allegedly, is that the alien beings were trying to create alien human hybrids that were indistinguishable from humans, meaning that they could blend into our society, except they would have the enhanced uh, mental capacities of these alien beings meaning that they could manipulate consciousness, mind control. And he even said that they they would have an ability or, or they lacked empathy, some of them. So it seems that human beings have something unique in us, that we have this range of emotion, but maybe some of the alien beings don't have that. And it's it's really remarkable to read the case studies that he reports because he's just these are just transcripts of things that sound like science fiction. Like what you're describing, they had a mock cocktail party in one case where these he calls them hubrids. These are basically, these are indistinguishable beings. They seem like humans, but they're actually alien-human hybrids. But they would have a mock cocktail party so the beings could uh, get used to interacting in a human manner. And some people also report that these hybrid beings, the hubrids, would sometimes like reside in the apartments of humans. And there would be the human caretaker, the abductee, that would try to teach them basics about how to interact in the world and just how to do things on Earth eat, um, use the bathroom just so they wouldn't, uh, they, they wouldn't seem so obviously to be non-human. I don't know what to say <laughs> to things like this. I've never personally experienced it, but it is interesting yeah. that someone from Temple is, is writing about this. Well, I, I know that we did an interview, I think it was with Paul Levy um, on something called Huetico, and it was about a mind virus that that uh takes over the human consciousness and uh that it was pretty scary stuff uh to to hear this so any comment on that yeah i think it's an important concept and whether it relates to the alien human hybrids or it's just a more something more general that there are forces in the universe that are benevolent and related to love and others that are the inverse of that and they might not always be physical so I do think that controlling our own minds is critical in this process because there are other influences that can steer us. So now I have a new appreciation for things like meditation and, and spiritual practices because they really train the mind to be able to withstand maybe some of these influences that we can't always see. And I'm thinking too, one of the universal concepts in 
all religions and all spiritual thoughts. It seems to be the one constant that that weaves its way through all of them is what we call here in Western culture the golden rule: do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So it's it's about love. It's about doing, and and it's about empathy, and it's about uh, being loving towards one another. That's kind of, I, I think, a, a little bit of an antidote against the uh, that foreign uh, entity that might enter our consciousness that's not so loving. Yes, I think that's a great point. You're reminding me of an analogy from a spiritual t- teacher, David Hawkins. He talked about how consciousness or this universal love that we're a part of is like the sun that's always shining. So it's always there, but there are clouds that get in the way and obscure or obstruct that intelligence love that we're a part of. So you might call these forces like Watiko, the darker energies, as like clouds. So it's just that the love is being obstructed. And, and as you say, the antidote is is probably removing those clouds so that we're more directly connected. And of course, the the sun is always shining. So to know that, that that's always available and the clouds are a temporary. I, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Mark Gober, and he is the author of An Into Upside Down Contact, UFOs, Aliens, and Spirits, and Why Their Ongoing Interaction with Human Civilization Matters. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, markgober.com, and he spells his last name G-O-B-E-R, markgober.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mark Gober, and we're talking about UFOs, aliens, spirits, um, all of these uh, ways that these seemingly otherness comes to us in our lives. And I'm thinking about in history, I know that in your writings and your research, this is a phenomenon that has been with us for a long, long time. I mean, eons. And so how do we know that's true? 
Well, number one, there is ancient artwork. So cave paintings and things like that, which could be interpreted as uh, illustrations of encounters with non-human intelligences. But also many ancient writings from all over the world, they have tales of interacting with the star beings or the sky gods, for example, whether it's Native American cultures, really all over the world, um, Central American cultures, they might not describe the beings in exactly the same way, but they talk about other intelligences that might have taught them certain things or um, just explain things to them about how the world works. So to me, that's very powerful. The fact that there seems to be something universal, even though maybe the beings weren't identical. It could be that different species interacted with different cultures, and that could explain differences in religions or differences in traditions, for example. But reading scriptures, um, now I have a totally different perspective because they might have described something that just sounded like a supernatural event, but now reading it from the lens of modern research, Maybe those people were just having a spirit encounter or an alien encounter, for example, and they just used different language because at the time they spoke differently. Do you mention one in particular? I mean, you mentioned many, but one of them that popped for me in Western culture in the Old Testament is the book of Ezekiel. And he had a tremendous vision uh, that might have been an alien contact. Yes. And it was very elaborate. He even talks about creatures that he experienced. And there have been many researchers that have talked about this, like Eric Von Daniken, for example, his famous book, Chariots of the Gods, 1968, where he theorized, well, maybe this was a UFO that Ezekiel encountered, actually a craft with beings. And in the book, I tell a story of a researcher who tried to reverse engineer the craft based on uh, what is Ezekiel described. And allegedly, there was a patent issued uh, called an omnidirectional wheel issued in 1974 based on his reading of Ezekiel. So again, this is one interesting case. For me, the power is in the multitude of cases that there are so many like this. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I'm thinking of another uh, that just popped out for me, and this is going to Africa where a young woman disappeared like for a couple of years, I believe. And then she reappeared and then she mentioned to her aunts and uncles and parents uh, that, oh, I was with uh, Mamawati or something like that. So describe that one. That one, like, wow, and how that was received by the uh, tribe. Yes, so that was a story told by Paul Wallace, who is an author, but he's also an Australian archdeacon. So he has a traditionally Christian perspective. And then he started to look at the Bible from the lens of, well, maybe some of these these gods or God was an alien species, and maybe there was human hybridization. So he looked at it from that lens and now has a very different perspective. But he um, he tells this story about the Mamiwata people. These are intelligent humanoids um, from Ghana. And there was a young girl, he was speaking to family members, and he heard the story of a young girl who was allegedly taken, and that the Mamiwata allegedly create hybrid beings, where they would tweak uh, human DNA, and they operated from underwater bases. And it's not just in Ghana, where they tell things like this. There are similar stories of you know related abduction-like experiences um, told around Kenya, the tip of 
South Africa, in the Caribbean, Brazil. So there seems to be something going on that people are reporting. And that just reminds me, you mentioned DNA. So that goes back like to Francis Crick, who is one of the discoverers of the DNA uh, molecule and how that works. Um, and he he made a statement, something about the early DNA, uh, I guess, phenomenon, where there was something that happened to make humankind different from apes. Uh, am I getting that correct? Yeah, so Francis Crick was the co-discoverer of the double helix structure of DNA. And back in 1972, he talked about this phenomenon known as directed panspermia, the theory that that organisms were basically uh, deliberately transmitted to Earth by other intelligences from other planets, which to me is actually a conceivable concept given how little we know about DNA. It's a relatively new discovery. And the idea that humans today were able to tweak DNA to do all sorts of things with plants and animals and humans. Um, why couldn't another species in this very large multidimensional universe theoretically have manipulated someone else's DNA like ours? Um, but that raises all sorts of questions because then it, we have to ask, well, what is a human being? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that you say something in your research that we're all one, where it's more than just just human beings and we're just this isolated species, but there's there's this multi-dimensional way of being that we're all together in this together. And some are for good and some are not for good. And I remember years ago when we uh, did an interview with Jacques Vallée, and he was really talking about how there could be some benevolent uh, species really helping humankind and having our our highest good as their agenda. But then there were others that could be malevolent. And it was the first time I had ever even thought about that. And so what we were saying earlier on is having more control or, or, or at least a realization that we must know our own consciousness and, and direct it as best we can towards good. Uh, and that's maybe one of the antidotes. And I'm also thinking, Mark, as we're talking, um, about the different ways that the aliens have shown up in in literature or, or depicted on cave walls and things like that are the ways that they might have been called um leprechauns or elves or or demons even or or angels that they give these other names and and then we think of them as um they're not real, but maybe they really were real, and these were just names that that culture gave them. As Jacques Vallée wrote a book called Passport to Magonia uh, a long time ago, where he he makes this point that uh, the contemporary sightings of aliens might be what in ancient times they called angels, gods, fairies, uh, devils, or elves, things like that. 
So language is really a challenge here because certain words have connotations in modern society and it's easy to get stuck into a very particular box when you hear a word. But there might be a uh, there might be similarities between some of these words and what people are reporting today. Exactly, exactly. Let's talk about some abductions and what is that? There are a lot of reports of alien abductions. And, you know, is that a terrible thing? Is that a good thing? Is I mean, I guess it's a mixed bag, isn't it? Yeah, it's really hard to tell. So first, what is an abduction? Um, because before I started researching this, I had heard about it a little bit, but I didn't realize the extent of what was going on and how much uh, documented research there is on this. So I, I mentioned John Mack earlier, head of psychiatry at Harvard, Pulitzer Prize winner. And I'm repeating that because this is a very credible person who was not looking at alien abductions for most of his career. And who, uh, who I'm, I'm just want to interrupt, who we also did an interview with. So uh, he's in our archive for people if they want to find the New Dimensions interview with, with Jacques Vallée and with uh, John Mack and with Alan Steinfeld. Uh, so those are all in our archive. Okay, those would be good ones to go back and listen to for sure. Uh, so John Mack became interested after Bud Hopkins, who was another researcher, uh, got him interested and said, hey, you should you should take a look at some of these cases. And John Mack, as a psychiatrist, was evaluating what the people were claiming and was wanted to see, were these people psychotic? Were they just making it up to try to make money? And his conclusion was that the people were genuine. They had a real experience. And the implications of that are very profound because of what they were reporting and the similarities in what they reported, which is that they were taken aboard crafts and typically operated on. Um, sometimes their genetic material was extracted, sperm, eggs. Sometimes they were being artificially inseminated. And the people came back talking about an alien humid uh, hybridization program where they would even see the beings on the craft, these hybrids that were part alien, part human. And that raises questions like you say, why are they doing this? Is this for our benefit or, or not? Uh, one of the things John Mack wrote in, in one of his books, he wrote two books, one called Abduction, where he goes through case studies of people that were abducted from a psych, uh, psychiatric lens, and another called Passport to the Cosmos. He said that it appears to be uh, an evolutionary insurance program, at least some of the cases, where uh, by creating an alien-human hybrid species, you'd preserve some of the human genetics in case humanity blows itself up, for example, and at least the, something is preserved. Uh, but then there are people like Dr. David Jacobs from Temple University, who I mentioned before, who is hearing things from people which suggest that the agenda is potentially darker, that it's about planetary takeover and the beings want to blend in and take over from the inside, apparently, where they can't be detected so easily. And it might be the case that there are multiple agendas, that some of them want to help humanity and others have a darker agenda, and even within species, because during these abductions, people will talk about gray aliens who are involved in these operations, and they'll talk about insectoid beings or praying mantises and sometimes even reptilians. Uh, but it could be that just like with humanity, we have some humans Humans, members of the human species who are saintly, others who are the opposite of saintly, it could be the same in some of these species. So just because a gray alien is doing something in one case doesn't mean that all gray aliens are that way. So I try to 
keep an open mind that there's probably uh, competing agendas here, and we could we could make arguments for why this is a, ben- a beneficial thing and also potentially a negative thing. And just one more point uh, is that people often come back from these experiences very much transformed. And this is something John Mack talked about from a psychiatric lens, that if they were able to integrate some of the trauma that they experienced because they were taken on an alien spacecraft, often against their will, that they would have a spiritual awakening on par with what happens from a near-death experience. So that is very significant too, because that could be interpreted as a very positive thing. Exactly, exactly. I'm here with Mark Gober, and we're talking about an into upside down contact, which is the name of his book. And it's about alien spirits and our ongoing interaction with them. I'm Justine Willis Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Mark Gober, and we're talking about contacts with truly otherness <laughs> beyond the human uh, humanoids, so to speak. I want to just say, like, there's no way that we can use the what we call normal or standard scientific methods with this because you you can't put a UFO in a laboratory and do double-blind research. So here we are. Can you say anything about the perceptual limitations we have in looking at all of this? Yeah, this is an important point that I'm really struggling with myself. So earlier I mentioned this notion of shape-shifting, that the beings have an ability to appear different ways. They they just know how to manipulate reality in in ways that we can't understand. But they also seem to be able to alter human memory. And the phenomenon is typically described as a screen memory, where uh, there's one researcher, his, his name is Mike Cleland, who focuses in particular on owls, because this comes up often with UFO encounters or alien encounters, where a person will say, I encountered an owl on the side of the road and I checked out the owl and all of a sudden a few hours were missing. What happened? And this is a a typical phenomenon known as missing time. So somehow the memories wiped, but then the person might have the memories come back and they'll see something different. So for example, they might use hypnosis to try to unlock the memory and the hypnotherapist will ask the person to try to go over to the, the owl in the person's mind and say, well, could you describe the owl? And then when they go to the owl in their mind, they'll say, wait a second, this isn't an owl. This is a gray alien, a screen memory. So what profound implications here? Because I'm now wondering basically everything in my memory. How do I know for sure that it is what it, I remember it to be? How do we know that memories are not implanted or thoughts are not implanted because our brain seems to be picking up signals from all over the place? I don't know. It's very confusing. Yes, it is very confusing. I'm so glad that you mentioned the work of, let's see, Abbott. I can't remember his first name, but he wrote a book, Flatland. 
Yes. And it, it was such a it was such a good way of describing how we perceive as human beings with our senses, the way we see things with our eyes or our ears or how we touch things or smell or taste. But there's so much more to perception. And Flatland really kind of gives us a good analogy for that. Can you describe uh, Flatland and what that's like? Yes, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's helped me try to think about this. Uh, Flatland is the idea that human beings are living in a two-dimensional world, almost like a flat piece of paper. So if you take that analogy and imagine that a sphere, so a three-dimensional object, intersects with Flatland, the intersection is a circle in Flatland. So the people, imagine if you lived in that two-dimensional Flatland and the sphere intersects, the people in Flatland would see a circle and they'd all point to the circle and they would try to analyze what the circle is. And let's say they got everything right about the circle. They would still be missing a lot of the sphere because they're only perceiving at a two-dimensional level, whereas the sphere is three dimensions. And what if what if we're dealing with something that is multi-dimensional? What if it's not just 2D versus 3D? What if it's something that we can't even comprehend? It's almost to me like the notion of infinity, which we acknowledge as a reality, but it is incomprehensible to the human mind. And even Einstein talked about uh, the idea of more dimensions exist than what we perceive as three-dimensional. Absolutely. I mean, our, our eyes are extremely limited. Even from a conventional perspective, we know that there is an electromagnetic spectrum of all sorts of types of light that our eyes don't ordinarily see. So we have a limitation in this human body as to what we can perceive, and yet we're trying to understand things that are probably multidimensional. And that's why this seems to be such a challenging phenomenon. I mean, I've read lots of researchers, and it doesn't seem like anyone has a full grasp on it because we're all humans. And we might be getting little pieces of the sphere, but we're not getting the whole thing. Well, this is kind of where psychedelics come in, in a way. As you said earlier on in our conversation, that when you're in a near-death experience or psychedelics, the brain actually turns off its filter. Uh, it can kind of describe what happens to our, our brain and our physiology with psychedelics and how we can then contact maybe other realities. Well, the conventional view of the brain and consciousness, and I wrote about this in my first book and into upside down thinking, is that the brain produces consciousness. And when the brain shuts off, there is no consciousness, there's no life after death. And um, in order to have a very complex experience under this perspective, you'd probably expect a lot of brain activity. And in fact, the reverse seems to be true in some cases. So psychedelics is one example, but in a very extreme case is a near-death experience where a person has little or no brain functioning. And yet when they're resuscitated, they come back and say, that was realer than real. It's the inverse of what you'd expect. So there are a number of phenomena like this. Um, autistic uh, or Savants is another example. People who have brain damage in some ways, but they have extraordinary mathematical abilities or musical abilities. So it's almost like when the brain shuts down, consciousness is expanded. And this might be what's happening in psychedelics with emerging research. Still, this is ongoing. But there seems to be research suggesting that reductions in brain functioning associated with the psychedelic trip 
are correlated with an enriched consciousness when people say, wow, I was in this other dimension. So it's like you get rid of the filter. If the brain is a filter for consciousness, when you get rid of that filter, wow, these expanded dimensions of reality open up, which is, as you point out, uh, might be able to tell us something about the nature of reality by examining some of these experiences. So in the book in particular, I focused on the research on DMT, which stands for dimethyltryptamine. This is a significant molecule. Some call it the spirit molecule because of what it seems to do to people. They, they are opened up to these other realities and it is produced in nature and actually produced in the human body. But typically it's, it's decomposed so quickly that we're not all in those other dimensions all the time. But for example, with the substance ayahuasca, the combination of chemicals basically in the plants allows the DMT to exist in the body for longer, like for hours. So people end up in these altered states. But also Rick Strassman from the University of New Mexico ran studies where he was intravenously injecting people with DMT just to examine basic things like their physiology, their blood pressure, things like that. And what he found was that people were encountering non-human intelligences, which was not, from an ethical perspective, he wasn't expecting to subject people to this, and he ended up shutting down the study. But very interestingly to me, this shocked me when I was researching this, people were reporting the same things that are reported in alien abductions. Now, Dr. Strassman did not know about alien abductions when he ran the study. Many of his volunteers who were taking DMT were not familiar with alien abductions, and they were reporting sometimes being operated on, encountering similar types of species. So interestingly, John Mack endorsed Rick Strassman's book on DMT because for obvious reasons, he was interested too. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And I know I remember doing an interview with someone who was talking about near-death experience and in that experience, this person uh, visited, he was dead on the table, no brain function, and, and he experienced visiting his family in India, half a planet away. And when he, when he came back into himself, he was able to describe exactly what his mother was wearing at the time and describe uh, what she was doing at the time that he was visiting and all of this really correlated. So it just tells us, boy, there's more going on here than than what meets the eye, literally. <laughs> yes. And what you, what you described is known as a veridical out-of-body experience. They're the most powerful uh, pieces of evidence, I think, which suggests that near-death experiences, or at least some of them, are not hallucinations. Because if a person comes back with a memory that can be validated and verified by someone who was not sick at the time, that suggests by definition that it's not a hallucination. And these are sometimes reported in the, the hospital room where the person's operated on. They hover over their body. They see things from that vantage point, from outside their body. How could that be? I mean, even if they were not unconscious at the time, how could you see something from the ceiling or see something in another room? So all of these things seem to suggest that the brain or the physical body actually restrict our consciousness. And there are things that can be done to expand our awareness outside of this flat land, so to speak, where we can perceive at a different dimensional level. And when that happens, it seems that our, our reality is much more complex than we're taught it is. Right, exactly. And in going back to verified phenomenon, I, I'd like to talk about, let's go back to UFOs for a second uh, here. And um, there were a couple that I would love for you to 
to talk about because there there were two that really popped for me. One was the Phoenix Lights, and the other was the United Airline employees in Chicago. So if you could describe that those two in particular as an example of many people seeing the same thing. Sure. So in the book, what I try to do is, is to go through many of these cases, because if it's just one case, it's harder to verify. And what, what I found to be compelling is that it's there are many cases where, where multiple people seem to be able to verify this stuff. And that's powerful to me. So the Phoenix Lights example is a famous one from um, 1997, where there were basically a boomerang formations of lights in, in Nevada. They moved down into Arizona and people were seeing a craft hovering for about five minutes and they could see the bottom of the object. Um, and then later in the night, it was just motionless in the sky and, and lots of people uh, saw it. Uh, so there's even a book called The Phoenix Lights uh, by Lynn Kate, and there's a documentary on this one. And there was a, a press conference held by the, uh, the then governor of Arizona who was trying to reduce the public panic and they tried to make it seem like a joke. But allegedly later he stated, well, I'm a pilot and um, I know the machines that are that fly in the sky and this was bigger than anything that I've seen. So that was a pretty powerful one. And then the other one you mentioned, the United Airlines case, this was from um, November of 2006. And uh, one of the best researchers, if your listeners are interested in this, is Richard Dolan. He's done some incredible research documenting case after case, UFOs in the national security state. I believe they're two volumes and they're like history books. It's pretty amazing. But this case here was one that, that Dolan described. He talks about a dozen employees roughly from United Airlines who saw this disc or oval-like thing hovering in the sky and it was visible for about 15 minutes. I mean, it's it's pretty interesting to me when you have people who are used to looking at the sky and they're up in the sky very often. Um, what mm. were they looking at there? And apparently the employees were told not to discuss the matter, the United employees, which is another theme in the research, which is that there's often a lot of suppression. Exactly. Exactly. I'm here with Mark Gober, and he is the author of An End to Upside Down Contact UFOs, aliens, and spirits, and why their ongoing interactions with human civilization matters. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, markgober.com, and he spells his last name G-O-B-E-R, markgober.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Mark Gober, and we're talking about intelligences beyond the human intelligence that may be contacting us on this planet. And so is there any evidence of a galactic federation? Hmm. Well, it was (laughs) (laughs) reported in um, December of 2020, the former Israeli uh, head of space directorate this was reported in NBC News. He talked about the existence of a galactic federation. And he said, this was his claim, is that they've been waiting until today for humanity to develop uh, to the point where we would basically understand this sort of thing. But he's not the only person. I mentioned that because this was a mainstream. You could just look up the news article in NBC News that this is a pretty high-level person talking about it. Um, but in the book, I also talk about uh, remote viewers. And so remote viewing is the ability to perceive something with the mind alone. So meaning like psychic perception and the U.S. government ran a psychic spying program, which I've written about in my previous books. It's been declassified. They say in their own documents, remote viewing is a real phenomenon. Implications are revolutionary. So if we accept that's possible, that you could perceive something that's far away in space and time, then theoretically, you might be able to look at things even on other planets. And there's an organization called the Farsight Institute run by Dr. Courtney Brown from Emory University who runs experiments on this, where he has multiple remote viewers uh, try to look at historical events or even sometimes current events just to see what they come up with and see if, if he can triangulate different things. And what he claims is that the Galactic Federation comes up in a lot of their readings and also the notion of of the interaction of non-human intelligences with human civilization. That came up for them a lot. And it wasn't something they were even looking for initially, which I find interesting. They were just looking at archaeological sites, for example, and then they kept doing it. And they, the psychics were seeing aliens popping up and the aliens were intervening with human society, which is pretty crazy. But with regard to the Galactic Federation, he says that it seems to be benevolent. That's what these remote viewers say. But Their intervention in our society is limited because there's something about allowing humans to learn and allowing humans to make their own choices. So they might want to steer us in a positive direction, but it's not like they're just going to take over and and fully change the direction of what happens here. It has to be voluntary. So this is like real Star Trek uh, sort of, you know, I'm a real Trekkie fan, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what it sounds like. And even... In the book, I mentioned a study. It's called the Free Study, F-R-E-E, uh, run by Ray Hernandez and someone from the Harvard Smithsonian Institute. So some very credible people. And they examined over 3,000 people who claimed to have UFO type encounters or encounters with other intelligences. And many of them talked about uh, having knowledge of an ET council and being brought into an ET council meeting. So this is something that seems to come up very frequently from different areas. There were also some very disturbing research that you've done and that was very hard to read about. And this is where uh, truly, truly evil and dark uh, sorts of, um, I, I, I don't know if they're abductions, but they're, they're rituals that happen. Do, do you recall what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, this is an it's an unpleasant topic, and it's not something that I enjoy writing about. But what I found in the in my own spiritual journey is that the ultimate nature of reality seems to be benevolent. That that there is this sun that's always shining the rays of unconditional love. That's what people are reporting. But we live in a realm that is not fully that. 
So it's like there's this paradox of there's pure benevolence on the one side, but then there's this duality of light dark within the realm that we uh, live in. And the the dark seems to be multidimensional. So it's not just humans who might be psychopathic and not have any empathy. There are beings who are who who enjoy that sort of thing as well. And in the same way that a channeler, for example, might want to invoke a benevolent entity and have that entity bring information, there appear to be people that do the inverse. So they try to invoke a dark being. And the way that happens is through some horrific rituals, um, usually involving uh, bringing about fear and suffering in really horrific ways. But for whatever reason, that seems to attract these dark energies on a metaphysical level, almost like they feed off of the energy. And I think it's important to acknowledge that these things exist, not necessarily to get just wrapped up in the darkness of it, but to acknowledge that it's a reality. Because without realizing how dark things can get, I think it can be, it can blind one to the truth of, of possibilities. So that's the reason I wanted to include it in the book and also to show that there is this wide spectrum that we see. Like in a near-death experience, people talk about really angelic type beings who they, they feel just nothing but unconditional love. And then we see the, the exact opposite where there are beings who like very negative things. Right. Well, I'm reminded, and this is where I, I connect interviews from very different people. So um, I'm going to connect what you're saying with something that I, I just finished an interview with Barbara Hort. She was talking about pandemics. And so a very different subject. But one of the things that came up, because as she was talking about it, she's talking about mythology that goes through time and has been part of our our heritage as human beings. And there is the uh, Greek myth of Persephone being abducted by Hades and taken to the underworld. Mm. And I, I just feel like it relates a bit to what you're saying here and reporting about this darkness. And what I learned about Persephone is that she is the one deity who made the conscious decision to eat the pomegranate seeds so that she would always go back down to the underworld. She became the queen of the underworld. And and in that way, she stayed in contact with the gifts that the underworld had to give. So I'm kind of bringing that in to relate to when when evil exists or that which is not light, whatever that is. I'm I'm not sure what evil is, but we, not light. We'll say there are gifts. I mean, Jung, Carl Jung talked about it in and Dark Night of the Soul, and Shakespeare talks about it. I mean, going down and and there are gifts. So this is what we as conscious beings need to cultivate is the gifts of the darkness. Right. And in some cases, it can be something that allures people where it's sort of like, we'll give you these gifts if you sell your soul. And it, it can be used for the purposes of power. So you reminded me of a story that has stuck with me from Dr. David Hawkins, who on his own path to enlightenment, if we want to call it that, where he was elevating and letting go of his attachments, he got to a point where it was just him. He felt like he was by himself in a very uh, transcendent state. And then essentially a being appeared. He called it a knowingness, but it was this energy that said in an instant, 
you've transcended all of your personal karma. All power is yours. Just take it. You can have power over others. And he thought for a second, well, wait a second. If I am everything, why would I need power over others? I reject this. And what he said is he, after he rejected it, he entered a new state of consciousness above where he was. So some amazing state. But he was also shown some of the beings who were faced with a similar temptation in the past, but they took the temptation. And he said they had a great karmic fall where they had to start from a mm. much lower level, whereas others who t- didn't take the temptation got to advance. So to me, there always seems to be this choice that mm. we're tempted. And maybe this is part of our evolution. Maybe that's what evil is, is that it's uh, testing us constantly and we get to make the choice. Are we going to take it and use it for something good or, or is it going to pull us in a negative direction? And isn't that the whole Jesus story when he when he's tempted by the devil? I mean, or they call it the devil. I'm not sure that that's the what the entity that comes to him when he's out in the desert. Yes, Hawkins refers to that. He says that Jesus, also the Buddha, was beset by demons. So this seems to be a common part of our path individually and collectively. So that that's hopeful then, um, and and a reason to continue on our path towards transcendence or I don't want to go up you know I mean up is not Bucky always talked about it there is no up in the universe it's only inside or outside so so really being conscious that we do have the choice and to make choices toward goodness rather than than the opposite yes yeah, I don't know what else to say about that, but that's a mark. There's so much we could talk about here, and I mean, where we've covered a lot of lot of ground. And if there's just anything that you want to add at this point, I mean, I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but but anything that you might want to add in this closing minute uh, that we have together today. Sure. Well, I'll refer quickly to the Nag Hammadi scriptures, which have captured my attention. These were discovered in 1945 in Egypt. They are written about 2,000 years ago, bound books that were apparently heretical. So the church didn't want them for whatever reason, which to me indicates we should pay attention to them. But they talk about origin stories. There are many books. And one of the origin stories, or multiple of them, talk about the notion that there are non-human intelligences that essentially keep humanity in a state of ignorance. And there's a quote that that I return to all the time, and I'll paraphrase it here, in one of the Nag Hammadi scriptures called The Nature of the Rulers. And it says, the rulers kept humanity in a state of confusion and a life of toil so that they would be preoccupied with the things of the world and not have time to be occupied with the Holy Spirit. And that to me resonates because it's very much the world that we live in, that there are many distractions and it's our uh, path perhaps to transcend or to go outside of that. But it also introduces the idea that there are these forces that seem to want to suppress humanity and it uh, brings to light the the perennial notion of a kind of a spiritual war that might be existing. So may we all become spiritual warriors for the good. Thank you so much, Mark, for being with us today. I want to remind our listeners, if you want to know more about his work, his website is markgober.com, and he spells his last name G-O-B-E-R, markgober.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions.
This is program number 3,779. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.